Welcome to the Treeleaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is a Soto Zen Sangha available anytime, anywhere at treeleaf.org. Come sit with us. slide the door about halfway. Thank you. Well, hello, everyone. Everyone can hear okay? Let me move this a little closer. Everyone hears okay? Good. Good, good. So good to see. Yeah, slide that big old wooden door we have here. Big old barn door. Very good. Thank you, Daniel. Well, today's talk uh, is part of our reflections for Jukai undertaking the precepts. And this past week, we've been looking at the precepts on avoiding to take life. And one by one, we'll be looking at all the precepts to see how they fit in our life. I often describe them as compass points or guidelines pointing us in helpful, helpful, healthful, and freeing directions that are beneficial to ourselves and those around us. You know, if you do something greedy, something angry, you use violence, it affects the people around you. It affects the whole world. It brings another drop of ugliness into the world. That drop of ugliness is what I believe we refer to as karma, the effects of our actions, volitional actions. But if we do something gentle, something loving, something non-greedy, generous, then that also is a drop of karma that we bring into the world to make this world a little more beautiful, I believe. And, you know, I'm a Yankee. Yankees are very practical, you know, where uh, what's the purpose of this? Why are we doing this? So I just explained to you one way to look at the precepts, but we're also Mahayana Buddhists. So the story is never so straight. There are already always many ways to look at the precepts and uh, some of them are, you know, hard to wrap your head around sometimes, but we're going to try to introduce some of these today and also a little of the history of how the precepts came to be in Japan, very different from the precepts found in most of Asia. And I'll tell a little about that story. Um, which is the right way to look at the precepts? As I often say in Zen Buddhism, yes, they all are truth. Even sometimes very, very different, seemingly conflicting ways of looking at things can be simultaneously true in our Mahayana Buddhist and Zen way of looking at things. I was going to call today's talk the Zen precepts, believe it or not, or 101 wacky wild things about the precepts, but I decided not to go that far. It's really not all that hard to understand. But the first um, in the reading is uh, something from Professor Hine, one of the great historians and Dogenologists, uh, who writes about the origin of Dogen's precepts, the Bodhisattva precepts, the 16 precepts that we are pursuing 
uh, to understand, uh, pursuing is the wrong word, that we are embracing to understand in our uh, Jukai. It is not known if the precepts in 16 articles resulted from Dogen's own in innovation or if he borrowed this group from another source. Dogen, in a writing describing the ordination ceremony for his priests, states that the ordination ceremony described therein is exactly the same as the one conducted by Dogen's teacher in China, Zhu Qing, in 1225, when he administered the precepts to Dogen. The reliability of that assertion, however, seems doubtful. A little background on this. In India, and still today in places like Burma and Thailand, the monks follow something called the Vinaya, uh, 227 for men, uh, a few extra for women, because women are trouble. They need a few extra rules. And um, these are incredibly detailed rules that cover most of a priest's life. And when you read the Vinaya, they came about because people in the Sangha at the time, the Buddhist Sangha, were doing no-nos, little bad bad things, according to the old stories. And each time they, someone would do something, they'd make another rule. And soon they ended up with these 227 rules. And they cover everything. They cover the size of the bed you should sleep on, how many robes you should have, what you should do if there are women in the room and you're a male monk, uh, how, uh, what kind of um, way you should treat the other people in the Sangha. Very, very, very detailed. When you should eat, what you should eat, what berries are you allowed, but what berries and nuts are you not allowed. It's very detailed. When these rules came to China, the Chinese situation was a little different. The climate is different. The economy is different. The social values were different. So some of the rules did not quite apply. For example, the weather was colder. So the clothing they wore in India, uh, well, they would have frozen in China. So they had to ha allow them extra robes. They uh, monks in India would stop eating at noon. Well, if you're in a cold climate, it was a little difficult. So they allowed them an extra meal but they said it's not food, it's medicine. You see, it's medicine. So um, they found, as good lawyers do, they found lots of uh, interpretations and loopholes. But they basically stuck in China with these same rules, including the biggies, such as celibacy. Well, something happened in Japan. And that is that a fellow named Saicho, who's not a Zen priest, he was a Tendai priest. Dogen originally came from the Tendai tradition. I have to explain what the Tendai tradition is. It's the kitchen sink of Buddhism. Tendai is a little of everything. It's a little Zen, it's a little esoteric, it's a little philosophical. And a priest there said, you know, we are Mahayana folks, so we don't need all these 227 rules. We need are Mahayana rules, which capture the spirit of this. So in Japan, gradually they got away from the 220 Vinaya rules, and they kind of went their own way. And then there's Dogen, who came up with these 16 precepts that we're studying. And nobody's, they're a little different from Saicho's rules. Nobody's quite sure where they came from. There are a little bit of this, a little bit of that. They have all the basics there. Don't steal, don't kill, don't get angry, you know. 
So all the important parts are there, but it's really Dogen's thing. Well, when Dogen went to China and all the Japanese priests went to visit China, the uh, Chinese didn't know what to make of these Japanese priests. They said, did you, when you were ordained, did you take the proper 227? And they said, no, we're, we did it the Japanese way. So a lot of the Chinese said, well, you know, you're not really priests. You can't sit, you're lay people. And you have to, uh, you sit over there with the lay people. And we can't even let you in the monastery because you're not real. And Dogen ran into this too. Apparently when Dogen came over, his paperwork, he was another one of these Japanese priests. And they looked at him and they said, well, you dress like a priest, but you didn't have the right paperwork and the right precepts. So I'm sorry to tell you, you know, you can't come in our monastery. Well, finally, this one fellow, Ju Ching, said, no, don't worry about that. You come in. And apparently treated Dogen like all the other priests, even allowed him to assume very high positions inside the monastery during the time he was there. And finally gave him Dharma transmission and said, what do we care about the details? I think that's what Dogen's referring to here when he says that Ju Ching, these are the precepts that Ju Ching administered to Dogen in spirit, because it's probable that Ju Ching was a traditional Chinese monk, did it the traditional Chinese way. These precepts don't come from Ju Ching. What Dogen probably meant to say is that when he went to visit Ju Ching, Ju Ching threw the differences out the window, which is a very good thing. Okay, so that's why what we're doing is very, very different from what they do in most other Buddhist countries. But our 16 precepts, as far as we're concerned, capture the essence, the spirit of all of that. Everything in our 16 precepts is the heart of nonviolence, of caring, of love, of non-attachment, of generosity that is contained in all the Precepts. So as far as we're concerned, and of course, we're a little biased because we're Soto people defending our own precepts. We are saying that it's all there. But that's not the only fun fact about the precepts. Uh, I'm going to turn to the blog posting by uh, Geshen Grenwood. She's um, an American woman who's been studying in uh, Japan to be a priest for a while. She studies at one of the women's monasteries. And she writes a blog that's fascinating. She, she talks about the, the beauties of it and also the craziness, the things she can't get her head around or sometimes the, the hard parts. And um, I recommend her blog to everyone. This is what she wrote on her experience undertaking Jukai or preparing for Jukai. But uh, first, she says, if I could add a footnote here, I would mention that the precepts in Japan are the same whether you are ordaining as a layperson, a monk nun priest, receiving Dharma transmission, getting married, or are dead and someone is doing your funeral. It's all the same precepts. It's more than that. It's all the same ceremony, basically. The Jukai you're taking is basically exactly the same, with a few small differences, as the ceremony to become a priest. The difference in the priest ceremony is you receive a robe like this, you receive your bowls, but the part about the precepts and the precepts themselves, same wording. And here's another fun fact. When you get married in a Buddhist temple in Japan, 
it's basically the same ceremony again with the same precepts. Instead of saying, I do, you, you know, in the rings and everything, they've added that recently as a Western innovation. But they give you the precepts. You take the precepts. And uh, when you die in Japan, they give you the precepts at your funeral, which is one of the reasons, by the way, that Japanese Buddhist funerals are not so popular because they look like funerals. The, the, only, the joke is the only difference between a Japanese Buddhist wedding and a Japanese Buddhist funeral is you can tell at one people are smiling. That's the, the only difference. But the content is almost the same. And uh, most people in Japan actually do not have Buddhist funerals. They're married in Shinto shrines. Here's a little secret. I was married in a Shinto shrine. But that's because you always do what your wife's family wants. But uh, I was married in a Shinto shrine, and you have your funeral in a Buddhist temple. Okay? But the funeral consists of a monk's ordination. And this is not just in Zen. This is basically in all the sects of Buddhism. So when somebody is dead, they have the coffin, and the fellow's in the coffin before they send him for cremation. And you ordain him. You shave his head. You give him the monk's precepts. They give him a little raksu. They give him a Buddhist name, and you go into the next world as a priest. Why? Well, the idea is that if everyone goes into the next world as a priest, they're going to kind of have kind of a clean karmic slate and uh, a good chance for rebirth. You know, they get into the priest line when they get up there. Priest on the left, you go, uh, you know, the shortcut through customs like that. You got it? Now, here's the thing, the tricky part. So you're asking the guy during the ceremony, the precepts, will you avoid killing, for example? And the guy's supposed to answer. Like when you do your ceremony for Jukai, you're supposed to say, yes, I will. But how does a person who's dead answer? So the point is that the priest kind of talks for him. It's almost like, you know, one of those ventriloquist dummies. Will you promise not to manifest anger? Yes, I will. No, they don't do that much, but... The priest speaks for the deceased, so because, of course, he's beyond words. So that's what she means by the fact that all the, the marriage, the Dharma transmission, the funerals are all the same precepts. What's the difference then between the priest precepts and the lay precepts? Well, I guess a little bit is the interpretation. The, the, no, 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 no. The feeling in the heart. If you're a priest, maybe we're supposed to be a little bit harder on ourselves. You know, I'll talk about this another time, but um, it's, uh, it's more of a position of service. The layperson, how to put this? I, I wanna, you get away with a little more if you're a layperson, I guess. I don't, that's a bad way to put it, but let's say we cut you a little karmic slack, uh, a little more... Uh, you know, we look the other way a little more. When you're a priest, you're not supposed to get away with uh, breaking the precepts. Okay, let's go down to um, the next section where she talks about why some extreme interpretations in Japan say that the precepts themselves, it doesn't matter whether you break them. It doesn't matter whether you understand them. She's describing a ceremony here when she's taking the precepts. And it was in, it was in old Japanese. She didn't understand and she went to her teacher, what is the precepts? And he said, don't worry, just take the ceremony. And she said, what? Am I supposed to understand? No, 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 no. It's the you know, just the precept ceremony itself works the magic. 
and she's really confused about it. And uh, we're going to talk about how that interpretation actually came to be. So she says here, the hardline conservative view in Japan of the precepts is that, is that it doesn't matter if you're aware of the meaning or not. It doesn't matter if you believe in them or not. As in Zazen, you sit, and this in its, is in itself enlightenment. Sutras abound with descriptions about how simply the act of receiving the precepts is the basis of our enlightenment. In this view, receiving the precepts does the work for you. There's doctrinal debate about this, of course. According to Professor Bodiford, Kyogen, Dogen's disciple, argued in traditional Tendai fashion, Tendai was the school Dogen came from, the kitchen sink school of Buddhism, that the bodhisattva precepts are not merely precepts, but actually embody the essence of the Buddha. Kyogo asserts that in contrast to the Hinayana precepts, that Hinayana precepts, that's a, a way we, we, we try to avoid that word. It means the 227 very detailed South Asian precepts. Uh, in contrast to the Hinayana precepts, which just control our karmic actions, our worldly behavior, the Mahayana Bodhisattva precepts describe Buddha nature, reality itself, I might say the absolute, right? The Mahayana precept not to kill should be interpreted not as a vow against killing, but as a realization of living enlightenment that clears away the dead static ent entities of our illusions. This is pure esoteric mumbo jumbo gold. At this time, I thought I was just vowing not to kill mosquitoes. Turns out it's not about not killing, but about not needing to not kill because I'm already enlightened. Squirrel, she says, violating, if I may say, the precept on gentle speech here a little bit. I'm just kidding. Screw you, mosquitoes. Wait, what? Ah, that's not right. Okay, well, let me let me cut to the chase here because I'm gonna we're gonna read a section here where this gets really kind of uh, how to say this. First off, there's the realm in Buddha Buddhism where in Buddha there's no separate individual to kill or be killed. It's impossible to do violence because there nothing can ever be divided, nothing can ever lack. You see? So that is kind of the big P precept of all precepts. That is Buddha nature. That is the Buddha where you can never steal because there's nothing to take. There's nothing ever lacking. How can you steal? Kind of get the feeling for that? Kind of get just nod that you got the feeling for that. Okay. In the great wholeness, there's no thief. There's no object to steal. Nothing lacking, nothing to add, nothing to take away, etc. In that sense, the ultimate precept of precepts is a precept that can never be broken, no matter what we do on this world, in this world, this earthly world. And also from another sense, the precept then embodies the Buddha nature. So merely taking the precept is enough because it is the embodiment like Zazen of this ultimate Buddha nature. Therefore, it's not a matter of whether you break the precepts or not. Before anyone asks, that is not a license to get away with things. All these priests always said, well, that's true too, but basically 
that doesn't mean you can go out and rob banks and, and kill and steal now. So don't start to think that. But it's the ultimate idea that it's the ceremony, it's the precept, just hearing the precept itself, whether you understand it, whether you try to do anything, it's the, the taking of the Jukai itself is Buddha. So let's. this gets really philosophical. I know it's a little tangled here, but let's just read this description of this from Professor Bodiford. Japanese Buddhists began to distinguish between conventional wording of the precepts, to which they assigned secondary importance, and the spiritual essence of the precepts, which became equated with Buddhahood itself. Accordingly, each of the individual bodhisattva precepts was and is conceived of as expressing a singular Buddhist precept that transcends all distinctions, whether between the so-called South Asian Hinayana Vienna, Vinaya and the Bodhisattva precepts, between secular life and monastic life, between good and evil. Although the nature of this unified precept is explained differently in various texts and in different schools of Japanese Buddhism, in general, its absolute essence rests on certain widely shared assumptions. The Buddha proclaiming the precepts is the ultimate Buddha. So each precept of the, that the ultimate Buddha expresses is the same unified, all-embracing reality that is Buddha nature. And thus the goal of the ordination ceremony or the Jukai is the proper ritual confirmation of this Buddha nature, cementing the bond that unites the limited individual person, that's you and me, to the universal absolute Buddha. That's you and me too, but from a different perspective. <laughs> the purpose of the ordination is not to instill morality, but to confirm the inherent awakening naturally possessed by all beings. Thus, behavior, either in conformity with or in violation of the precepts, is meaningless. What is important, however, is to have faith in the Zen lineage. That means to have faith in the line of transmission that you will receive during Jukai, going from you through teachers and teachers and teachers from China to India, back to the Buddha himself and whatever the Buddhas that came before the historical Buddha and back and back and back to you again. And faith in the ritual efficacy of the ordination procedure itself. Kind of get a sense for that? So sometimes it got really taken to extremes and people said, just take the ceremony. It doesn't matter what you do then. You can take the ceremony, go out and rob a liquor store. You know, it's, it's fine. But that was very unusual. Let me explain why. I'm not going to read Dogen's portion today because Dogen says something basically like what we just read. But Dogen was also very, very strict about behavior. And most of these monks actually were. They said, yes, I'm from, it doesn't matter that you understand the precepts. The precepts themselves work their power. But at the same time, when we live as monks, we generally are celibate. We avoid greed. We avoid anger. We live gently. It was encompassed in the lifestyle of the monks, in their in the rules that Dogen made for how his monks were supposed to live in the monastery, sharing, acting respectfully, being humble, uh, avoiding violence, of course, using gentle speech. 
it was implicit in the monk's lifestyle or the general Buddhist lifestyle. So all they're saying here, this is not a license to go off and do, just do whatever you want, though some crazy people have, extremists have said that, they're very rare. Most of the people said, well, you don't get off so easily. Now, how does that apply to lay people? Well, it's the same for you too. Even if you take this interpretation that it's the ceremony itself that works the magic, and most Westerners, we're not, we're, again, we're pragmatist, pragmatist Yankees, and we tend to say that, no, you gotta, these, these precepts have a, a pragmatic purpose, you know, in our lifestyle. But even if you, if you just think it's the ceremony itself working its power, that's not a license to get off here. There's a reason we live gently without violence, without greed, because the fruit of our Buddhist practice can truly be realized only when the heart is clear and free. And the angry heart, the greedy heart, the he's always jealous heart, the comparing myself to other people heart, the heart that is always making terror for yourself and people around you. How can that person realize the fruit, the peace, the wholeness, the harmony of this Buddhist way? Therefore, if you want to, you have to live like the precepts point. So even though uh, the precepts might be uh, taken in this way that they work their power just by hearing them, the point is live by them. And that has become the mainstream interpretation in most Western Zen Sangha now, that we seek to live by these precepts. Now, even though they're still not all the precepts in China, we believe they encompass a gentle, non-greedy, generous, non-violent, loving, caring lifestyle. But there were some more changes in Japan. Let me mention those before I close. And first, this was done as an attack on Buddhism in Japan. But I think it's one of the most refreshing changes that happened in Buddhism in its history. It depends how you look at things. About 150 years ago, the Japanese government uh, was dominated by certain very nationalistic forces. Shinto became pre preeminent. And Buddhism was seen still, even though, because it came from China, still as a foreign religion. The Shinto folks were trying to push down the Buddhist folks. So one of the ways they did that was they said, you guys don't have to follow your precepts anymore. At least the ones about Celibacy, not eating meat. Now, here's the thing. It's not clear in Japan. And the second link I put to Geshen's blog talks about this. You know, Japanese priests and Japanese culture in general tends to have a look-the-other-way attitude sometimes about if you're a priest in the temple and you do your ceremonies, and you act priestly, and then, you know, oh, it's five o'clock, you go out, and maybe, you know, you have a relationship with someone, sexual relationship, 
or you drink a little. This is not just recently. This is all through history. People tended to say, yeah, he's a human being. It's okay. As long as he does his priest thing, you know, the rest of him, he's one of us. The Japanese were never as strict as in India and in uh, maybe Thailand still and, and uh, China that, oh, oh, you looked at that woman, you're out. The Japanese were always a little bit like, yeah, 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 yeah. He's a, he's a, he's, he's a human being. So they were a little more forgiving. So when this law was passed, it was not clear how much the Japanese priests were a little loosey-goosey about this anyway compared to those on the continent. But officially in 1872, the government of Japan said, you can get married, you can eat meat, and uh, you can grow your hair, which, as you can see, I'm taking advantage of, and my wife and kids are over there, and I have a glass of wine with dinner. Yeah, I'm telling you this now. If you want to find a, a real Buddhist teacher, you better find somebody else because I'm certainly not celibate. Um, at least I'm, I'm my joke is I'm celibate on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Anyway, um, my wife would say probably it's the opposite, but that's another joke. Anyway, um, so what happened was the, the, the first, the, 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 the sex, the, the big bosses in the sex said, no, this is horrendous. But the, the, the rank and file, the ordinary priests said, Oh, well, okay, and they all got married, and now 80% of uh, male priests, I think, or 90% get married, and they have kids, and um, they still keep their hair short, uh, but that's uh, kind of, uh, there are some who grow their hair, and uh, they liked it. The women, by the way, in Japan, very interesting, women nuns tend to be celibate by their own choice. That's another subject. But the male priests, and that's by choice. There's no rule that they have to. But most of the male, the female priests tend to maintain celibacy still in Japan by their own choice. But the men get married. Now, why do I think it's a great thing? Another step to bring these teach teachings out into the world. That's, you know, the people in China and India and Thailand might disagree with me. I don't know how the Buddha himself would feel about it. But I feel that we can keep a kind of clarity of the heart, a kind of celibacy of the heart, even while we're married and having kids and normal relationships. There can be a kind of purity of the heart, even while we live as balanced, ordinary human beings in the world. So, you know, I've talked about this many times before, but I think these changes that let the priests get married. We're not all bad things. I'm going to close with a funny story from our uh, Nishijima Roshi's lineage, which I've told before. Some of you probably heard it. So Nishijima Roshi, when he got to be about 55, he had a, already a daughter and he had a wife. And he decided, he, he, he ordained late in life, and he decided he was suddenly going to become celibate. So uh, he didn't mean this to be a funny story, but he basically went to his wife at the age of 55 and, she, and he said, honey, I'm going to be celibate. And apparently what she was, she said was, eh, no big loss or something like that. He didn't tell it quite that way, but that's how it came across. She said something like, okay, well, go ahead. So, uh, but he liked to eat meat. He believed, and I've, we've gotten into this with the vegetarians. Please don't write me letters. 
he believed that it was necessary <laughs> for the body to eat some meat. So he was a meat eater, but he wouldn't drink alcohol. He, uh, one time I tried to uh, put, I, I translated one of his books and I tried to sneak into the part where it said about alcohol. I said, but you know, a glass of wine, doctors say can be helpful. And he made me take it out. He rarely made me change any of my translation. He went through line by line by line, but he came to the part about what glass of wine? No, and take it out of my book. So, you know, so he's celibate, he's eating meat and, but no. So the joke is in our Sangha, okay. Alcohol, no, I'm breaking that rule. Meat, yes, sex, Maybe. I'll leave you on that note. Shall we close the, um, oh, I, I, that's such a profane note to close before we chant, but that's who we are. Shall we, uh, Michael, shall we close the sutra? Oh, wait, wait, wait. Let me uh, take, uh, let's, uh, any questions? Raise a hand if you got a question. I always want somebody to have a question because we have all this wonderful technology. Someone do me a favor. Really? Okay, go ahead. Turn your microphone on. Ask questions. Oh, Sexy, hi. Thank you, Zundo. Um, I wonder if you could talk for just a minute um, about, you mentioned the idea that uh, in Dogen's time, he may have seen it as, you know, we don't really need to worry too much about these precepts because it's just sort of wrapped up in monastic life. Um, for our sangha where we are, you know, out in the world, we have, um, lots of opportunities to, uh, to, to violate the, the precepts in, in, in sort of spirit and law. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you had anything to say about that idea that, right, like we're not living as monastic. So does it mean something different to us perhaps in as, as modern folks living out in the world than it would have meant to Dogen? Yeah, yeah. Or anyone in a monastic setting. This uh, week we had the, the thread about quotes about lay practice. And one of the quotes is one of the traditional statements from the Buddha, from the old, old sutta, when he said, this world is dusty. It's not easy to pursue. And then he talks about Buddhist practice. And then he talks about the fellow leaving home to become a, a, a priest, a monk. Well, notice he said, it's not easy. He didn't say impossible. It's not easy. I actually think it's easier if you're in a monastic setting with the boys, it's easier to avoid temptation. Everyone's watching you. It's over your shoulder. You know, you're, you're not, you're removed from the uh, temptations of the world. So our way is certainly harder than uh, the easy street they have in those monasteries. I'm being a little tongue in cheek there because they, it's, um, but in some ways, being removed from temptation is easier than living in this world where we're constantly bombarded by ten temptations every time we open our eyes. Well, the answer I would say is that's why we're reflecting on each of these precepts one by one and to see how they fit in our complicated lives. What does it mean to avoid taking life in this world where we have 9-11 and we have abortion and we have killing termites in our wooden house, and we have uh, eating meat. Do we eat meat or not eat meat? Yes, 
it's hard and we have to reflect on what this means. I cannot give you a clear answer. I can tell you some things are black and white wrong. Child abuse, wrong. No excuse, period. There are some black and whites in this world. Um, dropping bombs on innocent people, yeah, I, I think that's not a good thing. Definitely to be forbidden. But what about all those areas of complexity? This is what we're reflecting on. That's the best answer I can give you. Okay. Anything else on that or something else? Anybody else? Okay. Ian, you had something? Yeah, question. I was reading a lot about what monks can and cannot do. So Zen monks are also allowed to handle money. Because uh, I read that monks are not supposed to handle money. They're only supposed to eat out of a bowl. Uh, very strict, a lot of stuff uh, that I read about that monks cannot do. Um, yeah. Um in, now, it's outside my tradition, so I have to be careful how I describe this. In South Asia, traditionally, monks were not allowed to handle money, and they're still not. Uh, so they, they have – I'm going to tell you another funny story, and, and this is risking breaking a precept about talking about other Buddhists, but I'm going to tell you the story anyway. There, there are all kinds of ways to get around that, like you have someone handle the money for you. You know, would you reach in my and get my credit card? You know, that, that kind of thing. I can't handle it. Or, or a credit card. Some people say, well, credit card is not handling money because it's a credit card. You know, all kinds of rules like that. And, of course, when it got to China and then it got to Japan, they were not so strict about it. Here's a funny story. In our town, we have a Costco. You all know what Costco is, especially the Americans, right? The big store. I go in the Costco. There's a Thai Buddhist temple there. In, in our town, there are a lot of Thai people who live here, and they built their own Wat, just like in Thailand. It's beautiful. You would think you were in Bangkok. I mean, it's just gorgeous. And they have three or four Thai priests who live there servicing the Thai community. So one day I go into Costco, and there are the three Thai priests in Costco. And I think, amazing. They're, they must be astounded by the decadence of Western society. This must be so disgusting to them. And so I go up and I introduce, you know, I bow. And if I say to my, them, hi, I'm Buddhist priest too, they're going to look at me like, what are you, from Mars? You know, here, this is my kid. I'm, I'm also a fellow Buddhist priest. This is, may I introduce my child here? They're going to look at me, you know. So I'm in Costco and the, 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 there's a fellow who speaks a little Japanese. And I said, I'm going to introduce just, you know, thank you for coming here. And I want to say, so what do you think of all this decadence? And I say, so what do you think of all this? And they translate for the Thai priest, and he answers in Thai, and he comes back, and he says, prices are not too bad here. <laughs> okay, let's close on that note. Thank you for joining us for the Tree Leaf Zendo podcast. Treeleaf is an online practice place for people who cannot easily attend a Zen center due to health, location, work, childcare, or family needs. We provide netcast Zazen, retreats, 
discussion, jukai, the support of fellow practitioners, interaction with a teacher, and all other activities of a Zen Buddhist Sangha, all fully online, accessible anytime, anywhere, without charge. Come build the future of online Zen community and practice.